Look with me there, if you will, Psalm 137. Um, I'll give you a second to get there in your Bible. I, some of you, I, I told you on Wednesday night that you should read this psalm in preparation for today. How many of you did? I, I shouldn't put you on the spot. But uh, if you read Psalm 137 and preparing for today, you might have thought to yourself, hmm, I wonder what pastor is going to say about this psalm. Um, that's usually the response when we read Psalm 137. Puzzlement. Um, Maybe a little bit of discomfort, uh, but hopefully you'll see why here. I think you'll see why here in just a minute. Psalm 137. Look with me there. Uh, in fact, why don't you read it with me? Let's all read it aloud together. It's only nine verses. Start there with me, verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Do I need to explain why this is a unique and challenging passage of Scripture for us to examine this morning? Well, you might have thought I would skip Psalm 137. I mean... I've been, in truth, I suppose when, when I started preaching in the Psalms back in October of 2015, I knew this was coming, so I probably could have, you know, been preparing since then, uh, and I think in some ways we have, but uh, it's interesting, in 1967, uh, Professor John Bright gave a series of lectures at the Divinity School of Duke University, in which he noted that his church's hymnal contained Psalm 137. But in that hymnal, they had removed the last three verses of the psalm. It only contained verses 1 through 6. It did not have verses 7 through 9. Now take a look at those last three verses again. Wouldn't it be much nicer, much easier to read, much more acceptable to our Christian sensibilities if we didn't have that last stanza of the psalm? I mean, most of the challenges that we face in this psalm would, be, would disappear if we just didn't have to deal with verses 7 through 9, if we could just focus on verses 1 through 6. Okay. Well, Bright had something to say about that. And I'll quote him. He said this, Is this a theologically legitimate procedure to omit part of a text for reasons of space is one thing and perfectly proper. To do so on moral and theological grounds is another. It points to an understanding of the use of Scripture that is at least questionable. It tacitly implies that Scripture ought at all times to be morally edifying and that it is proper to skip over such parts as do not meet that standard. He says this, it advertises that there are parts of Scripture that we wish were not there that we prefer not to hear and will not hear or trust our people to hear. I agree with Bright, for the most part, in his sentiment here. We may find this psalm difficult to deal with, but we cannot simply remove the parts that we find uncomfortable. Because if we do, we bring into question the authority of all of the Bible. If we want to remove... If you say, well, listen, I'm comfortable with everything in the Bible except these verses, <clears throat> then the whole thing is out the door. Right? The whole thing is out the window at that point. We, we cannot trust the Bible if all of it is not God's Word and therefore profitable according to 2 Timothy 3.16. And so, as we've done with all other 
imprecatory psalms. Remember, those are psalms that, bring, that, that, that pronounce curses. And we've come across several of them. As we've done with them, we're not going to skip over them. Uh, we, we must examine this psalm. And we must, as, as Christians today, we've got to read a passage of Scripture like this, and we've got to study it. We've got to try to understand why the Holy Spirit breathed these verses out and used the pen of the psalmist to do it. Because again, we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. That includes these verses. Holy men of God did not speak on their own uh, initiative, but as the Holy Spirit carried them along, they wrote these words. And so these words are from God Himself. Now, to do this, as we study this, we're not going to try to soften this. Right? We're not going to try to explain it away. I'm not going to suggest to you that uh, you know, this, is, this is some sort of figurative language. We don't have to really take it seriously. However, I think what we need to do if we're going to understand Psalm 137 properly is we have to see it in its historical and its scriptural context. And those two things are very important, and I'm going to show them to you this morning. And when we do that, we're going to see that this psalm is a very powerful message for us today. Right? This carries some important truths that we need to hear. So let's consider what was going on when this psalm was written. Let's look at the historical context just a little bit. Right? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, conquered Judah in 605 BC. And he took many of their princes and nobles away as captives when he did that. Uh, probably Daniel right, and his friends were carried away captive in 605 BC, probably and taken away to Babylon. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. Then he returned again to Jerusalem two more times and removed more people. The, the, the second time, it was actually the third time, but the last time that he returned there was in 586 BC. And at that point, he completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem. This included leveling the temple and burning everything to the ground, tearing the wall down, burning the gates, everything. Now, Psalm 74 actually records uh, some of this event. And here's what it says in verses 4 through 8 of Psalm 74. Your enemies, speaking of God's enemies here, roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. You get a picture here of the soldiers taking these axes and hammers and tearing down the temple. He says there in Psalm 74, They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them all together. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. So in addition, though, to the loss of the temple and all the physical structures of the city of Jerusalem, the human toll was heartbreaking. It's no wonder that Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 3, verse 48, My eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah, if you, if you understand your history, uh, Jeremiah was an eyewitness of those events. He saw Jerusalem's fall. He saw the destruction. He saw the devastation and the human cost. And he cried and he wept. And he says he couldn't stop weeping because of the, the devastation and the loss. So we've got to kind of put ourselves in that moment of history for a minute. Because here in Psalm 137, the psalmist says that they sat by the rivers of Babylon. That's probably a reference to the irrigation canals. There are two primary rivers that went on either side of the great plain of Babylon, and then they dug canals that crisscrossed that plain and watered and irrigated the whole plain. And they probably are talking here about sitting there in that, that huge plain there of Babylon. And while they are there, the psalmist says their captors mock them. Notice what they say to them in verse 3. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Now this is not just a request for music. 
Understand, what are the songs of Zion? This is not just a request for music. It is a slight against Yahweh himself. And it's intentional. When they say songs of Zion, what are they talking about? Well, obviously, they're referring to psalms. <clears throat> the psalms were the hymnal of the nation of Israel. And when we look through the book of Psalms, we find a whole host of references to Zion and Jerusalem, names that are used virtually interchangeably. I'm just, I'll just share with you a little bit of what the Psalms, and this is just kind of condensing it down. I'm not going to give you the references for it because uh, they're all scattered throughout the Psalms, um, but you can just do a quick search even for the word Zion and Jerusalem in the Psalms, and you'll see so many references, but, but many of things. It was called Yahweh's holy mountain, his dwelling place, the place of salvation, the place from which Yahweh would deliver his people and bless his people. It is described as the perfection of beauty, as an everlasting stronghold. It is the place where God bestows his favor and where his people gather to give thanks and fulfill their vows to him. And Zion is to be the place this is according to the Psalms, to be the place where Yahweh conquers all of his enemies and establishes his throne in the midst of his people. So think about that for a second. If that's what the Psalms have to say about Zion, which one of those songs would have been appropriate for them to sing? When Zion lay in ruins, a smoldering heap, and they are captives in a foreign land. And their captors are telling them, hey, pick one of those great songs about that everlasting city, that, that place where God's throne is, and sing it to us. We want to hear it. You see, they're mocking the Lord. The psalmist says that in response to that, there he says in verse 2, in response to this, this request or this call for a song, that he and his companions hung their harps on the tree branches, and they just sat down. They were unable to forget what had happened to their beloved city. But this psalm, and this is what's interesting to me, this psalm is about remembering. Uh, three times in this psalm, once in each stanza, the psalmist uses the word remember. It's a, a re recurring theme here. This psalm is about remembering. And here in this first stanza, what is it that the psalmist is remembering? And he says, when we remembered Zion. He's remembering Zion. The city that he loves. That city which, which, was, which was the object of God's gracious choice. Only now it lay in ruins. It's a smoldering heap of rubble. Now, we have to ask ourselves one, one question. Why did this happen to Jerusalem? Why was Jerusalem destroyed? Of course, if you were with us in, in our fully equipped class at 9.30, we talked about the will of God. We could give a, an answer and say, well, it was clearly God's will, right? This was God's will because it happened. It came to pass. But again, Psalm 74, which we already referred to. Remember Psalm 74 describes the, the, the coming in with axes and hammers and tearing the temple down and burning it with fire. Well, that psalm begins by saying this, O oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? So here's the question. Why did Jerusalem fall? Why did the temple get torn down and burned to the ground? Why was that destroyed? Well, the answer the reason not only for the fall of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple, the reason for the loss of all of the loved ones of these Israelites, the reason their families were destroyed, the reason that their, their, that their homes were ruined is all a part of God's judgment. To put it another way, this was a consequence of their sin. And so the first thing we need to remember, the psalmist is remembering it here, we need to remember the cost of sin. We need to remember the cost of sin. Hadn't God chosen Zion for his dwelling place? Hadn't he established the throne of David there in that city? Hadn't he graciously come down to fill the temple 
If you remember that account, when they built the temple and Solomon dedicated it, and the presence of God filled the temple so the priests couldn't even go in. Remember the temple? That was the place where God's people were to come and meet with him. I mean, we just we just finished studying the songs of ascents. Right? We started back in March and we, we, we walked through the songs of ascents all the way through. We just finished Psalms 120 to 134. All of those uh, brief kind of choruses which were written to, uh, to, to be sung as the Israelites marched from wherever they were coming to the city of Jerusalem for the worship of Yahweh. This is the place where God's people are to gather and fellowship with Him and worship Him. What did the Babylonians think about that? Well, they had destroyed Jerusalem. They had burned his temple. And in their minds, that meant that their gods had defeated Yahweh. Their gods, Bel and Marduk. And they they believed that their gods were more powerful. That their gods had succeeded in defeating Yahweh. That's why they were able to destroy his temple. That's why they were able to, to, uh, you know, take captive his people and, and, and collect all the spoil of war. And so when they ask the Jews to sing a song of Zion, they're wanting to rub their faces in. in it. They're wanting to, 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 to say to these Israelites, our gods are greater than yours. They wanted to if you will, demonstrate or remind, in their view, remind the Israelites that Yahweh's power was not strong enough to protect His home and His people. And so if you were among those Israelites who's been carried away captive, but you are a believer, as the psalmist clearly is, And whatever other people of faith remained among the Jews, they refused to participate. They refused to give in and fuel the mocking scorn of these Babylonians. But notice, I think this is interesting. They didn't destroy their harps. They hung them on the trees and wept. Why? Because they were the cause. See, as these uh, as these Babylonians are mocking them and saying, see, here's the proof that our gods are greater than yours because we burned the temple and we destroyed your city and we've ruined your family. The Israelites could say, no. The reason this happened is that we have sinned and God has judged us. That's the only reason you were able to destroy the temple because God was judging us. Their sin had carried with it a tragic price. The same thing is true today for you and for me. Sin is costly. It is devastating. Even when we think we have escaped the worst potential consequences of sin, we need to realize there's an incredibly high price to be paid. Think about what the Bible says, the book of James. He says that sin, when it is full grown, brings forth what? You know what it is, what? Death. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death, James says. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he says the wages of sin is death. Death is costly. Sin is costly. It brings death. He doesn't say that most of the time sin brings death, but sometimes you can escape it. No. Sin always carries this toll. Even when it seems like we've gotten away with it. Even when it seems like we've escaped the worst consequences, sin brings devastation, destruction, and ruin everywhere it goes. Even as Christians... You know, we can claim Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know that? If you have trusted in Jesus Christ and you are in Christ, 
you can never be condemned. You can never be condemned. But understand this. That doesn't mean that sin is any less costly. Even as Christians, the choice to sin and rebel against God's Word carries a terrible price. We need to recognize that. Now, some of you, I say this delicately, I'll include myself, like me, are old enough to have experienced the pain that sin can cause. Sin has a way of twisting, tearing down, of ruining things that ought to be good. And you probably, if we had time, we could go around the room and we all could share our own experiences. We have, we have found this to be true, that sin, our own sin, it takes things that God has intended for good in our life and it makes them twisted and it ruins them, destroys We have the psalmist here, and he says, when we remembered Zion, we wept. It was their sin that caused this. This is the consequences. And as he remembers the consequences of sin, he grieves. It's painful to remember these things. It's, it's painful. I, as a Christian, it's painful to stop and think about the sin that you have committed, that I have committed, and how it has affected our life. We don't like to do that. And I'm not necessarily saying we should sit down and spend the rest of the day reminiscing about our sin. Okay, But we need to remember the cost because sin has a, a terribly high price. And it's painful to remember. It's very hard to do that. So here's a question. In the first stanza, we kind of understand the psalmist is forced to remember Zion because his, his captors are asking of a song. They're mocking. And he is forced to, to kind of come face to face with the reality. You know, this is my fault. It's our fault. But the second stanza is different because in the second stanza, the psalmist commits to remember. He is determined to remember Zion. But if the memory is so painful, why would he determine to remember? Look at verses 4 through 6. How shall we sing Yahweh's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem, I'll my chief joy. What's he doing here? He does more than say that he's going to remember, by the way. He utters a curse against himself if he should forget Zion. He curses his right hand and his tongue. It's kind of hard to play the harp and sing if you don't have your right hand and you don't have your tongue, right? So for the psalmist, this, is a, this curse is significant. He says, if I forget Jerusalem, let me be cursed. What's that about? Well, first of all, the word forget there in verse 5 means to become inattentive or to, um, to, to, to ignore something. So he's, he's not worried about becoming absent-minded, right? He's not thinking, well, it'll just slip my mind one day. He's saying, if I turn away from Zion, if I neglect to think about Zion, if I ignore Zion, then let me suffer these curses. So he's referring here to a willful neglect or turning away. Now, this is exactly what happened to a lot of Jews who went into captivity in Babylon. It's exactly what happened. They forgot about Zion. They forgot about everything that God had said about Zion and all the promises God had made and all of the things that they were to be looking forward to. They forgot about that. Now, in fairness, it was pretty easy to do. I mean, they were living hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem in the midst of a foreign people with a different language, a different religion, a different culture. The city of Jerusalem was ruined, destroyed, wiped off the map for decades. I don't want to be too critical because I think we need to understand 
that the tendency to believe what we see with our eyes rather than believe what God has said in His Word. That's exactly what the issue is here. Because if you were in Babylon and you've been carried away captive and Jerusalem has been destroyed, your eyes are telling you that there's no way that God can ever fulfill the promises for Zion. Everlasting stronghold, uh, perfection of beauty, it's, it's ruins, it's rubble, it's burned, it's destroyed. It's a place where the memories you have are the most painful memories of your life. Everything about it screams that God has done with it. Everything you see, everything you hear, everything you smell, everything you remember, it all says, this is over. So we need to not be too hard, hard toward these people here because this was a temptation. It's a temptation we face to believe what we see with our eyes rather than believe what God's Word says. The psalmist is, that's why the psalmist is committing to this. Right? The psalmist is determined not to forget Zion. As painful as that memory is, because he realizes it was their sin that brought it about. As painful as that is, he is determined to remember. And that word remember there in verse 6, the same word that's used in, uh, back in uh, verse 1, it's the same word that will be used again in the next stanza, but it means to, to set up a memorial. It's kind of like, um, my wife has, has got me doing this now, I, at least I try, um, because she wants me to use a calendar on my phone that syncs with her phone so that she always knows what my calendar is and I always know what her calendar is. And sometimes it works, but... Um, but you know, you put your, your you, you put the event in the calendar, and then it's automatically on a notification, so it will send me a reminder before the event, hopefully before the event. <laughs> okay, but it, but right, that's it's like that's the idea. We're going to set up a reminder, a notification, so that we will remember because we're determined to remember this thing. We're not going to forget. What is it? We're not going to forget. We're remembering the promise of God's grace. See, that's the issue here. I think this is the key. Because we're beaten down by our sin. We suffer sometimes, sometimes we suffer the consequences of our sin and we're in the middle of that. And maybe you're there now. Maybe you are experiencing right now the consequences of sinful choices and you are in the middle of that experience right now and feeling the pain and you say, you know what, I brought it on myself. I can't blame anybody else for this. It's not just bad circumstances. It's me. I did this. I did something stupid, and now I'm in the middle of a mess. One, welcome to the club. But two, in that moment, we need to remind ourselves of God's grace, of the promises of God's grace. Right? He is not finished with you. He's not finished with me. He wasn't finished with Israel. I mean, it looked like that. Jerusalem was destroyed. They were taken out of their homes. They were scattered everywhere. Everything in their life was ruined. But God wasn't done yet. <laughs> the psalmist here is determined to remember and in faith, in, in that determined determination to remember God's promises, there's hope. I said this psalm is all about remembering. Meet the verse 7 in the final stanza. It's interesting because we have a little bit of a shift here. In verse 7, the psalmist speaks directly to the Lord. And he calls on God to remember. Look at what he says there in verse 7. Remember, O Yahweh, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem who said, raise it, raise it to the very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed? Happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. This is the third time in the psalm that he's used the word remember. Again, means to set up a memorial, a reminder. So the psalmist is saying, God, make yourself 
a reminder, a memorial, a notification, so that you don't forget. So the issue here is Yahweh is the one who needs to remember something, make note of something, record something, and revisit it at the appointed time. What is it that the Lord is to remember? This is really important. The psalmist mentions here the sons of Edom. So this is where when we read the Bible, we've got to read the Bible with an understanding of what has come before because the sons of Edom are the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. That takes us all the way back to Genesis. And Jacob's brother, uh, uh, Esau, Uh, Remember, Jacob and Esau were grandsons of Abraham and Sarah. So these are relatives going way back. When Jacob and Esau were alive, you remember there was a blood feud between the two brothers. Esau swore to kill Jacob. Now, there later was kind of a reconciliation. um, Never really a partnership, but they at least didn't kill each other. But... That blood feud and that antagonism continued down through the centuries and through the generations following Jacob and Esau. Both of these brothers ended up becoming, their descendants becoming nations, the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom. And the psalmist here is referring to Edom, this blood feud. Now, when Babylon invaded Judah and uh, captured Jerusalem, the Edomites were not disappointed. Right? They had been looking for this. This was finally, in their minds, uh, you know, the, the children of Jacob were finally getting what was coming to them. And the psalmist here tells us what they said. They egged on the invaders. They said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. Not very nice, really. But listen to what the prophet Obadiah said, because he also describes this very same day the day of Jerusalem, the psalmist calls it here. Obadiah, call, he says this. He says, you should not have gave, speaking to, he's, Obadiah is speaking to the Edomites here. He says, you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have proudly spoken in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction, nor laid hands on their substance. You should not have stood at the... Okay, so they they watched them fall. They laid hands on their substance. That means they went in and they stole and took the spoil. But then notice this gets worse. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped. Somebody managed to get away and escape the Babylonians. What did the Edomites do? They waited and killed him. And he says this, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. In other words, some of the Israelites escaped and got away and the Edomites gathered them up and then delivered them back to the Babylonians to be taken captive. Made sure that they didn't escape and were carried away captive. And so the psalmist says one thing about this, remember, O Yahweh, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem. God, you remember that day. You remember the actions of the Edomites. That's very important for us to understand what he's saying because he is not breathing out hatred toward the Edomites here. He is not seething with anger and out for blood. What he is doing is this. He is saying, God, the Edomites are your responsibility. You deal with them. You take care of these people. These people have been wicked and vile and hateful. Lord, you remember them. You deal with them. He is placing them in God's hands. He is expressing his trust, his confidence in the Lord. And this is the third thing from the psalm, that God will remember to judge the wicked. God will remember to judge the wicked. We have to understand that that's what he's saying here because if we don't, then we're going to get the last two verses wrong. See, we read verse 7 and we realize what the psalmist is doing is he is placing the Edomites, these people who have seriously mistreated him and his people, but he is placing them in God's hands. 
He is saying, God, they're yours to deal with, not mine. God, you remember them. You make sure that on the day of judgment, you remember and you judge rightly. You take care of them, not me. He's not taking matters in his own hands. He's not seeking vengeance and blood. He is simply saying, God, this is your job. What does the book of Deuteronomy say? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord of hosts. It's God's job to get revenge. It's God's job to ensure that justice is served. It's not the psalmist's job. I would submit to you, it's not your job and my job to make sure that justice is done. Ultimately, it is God's job. And the psalmist says, God, this, you, you remember it. Now, again, this then guides us into the last two verses because if we're, if we're not careful, we'll think the psalmist here is filled with hatred and bloodlust. That's not what's going on here. I, again, we read these last two verses and we have to admit these are chilling verses to our ears. But let's understand exactly what the psalmist is saying and where he gets these ideas from. Because you need to know, I said that there's two contexts. The first was historical, and we looked at that. But what's the scriptural context? There's a scriptural context. Do you know the psalmist here did not just come up with this on his own? These last verses are not just his imagination. He didn't sit down and think, what's the worst thing I can imagine to happen to those Babylonians? I'm so sick of these guys. I want to do anything I can to destroy them. Let me think of the worst thing that could happen to them. Ah, I got it. Happy is the one who takes your, your children and, and crushes them and kills. I just can't wait to see you destroyed. That's, that's not what's happening here. I can prove it to you. When the psalmist was writing Psalm 137, he was meditating on God's Word. He was. He was reading and thinking about God's Word. You know that? Now I know what you're thinking. Pastor, what pastors were they thinking about? When Jesus said, turn the other cheek or love your enemies? No, okay, Jesus hadn't spoken those words yet, so that's not fair, but all right. Even then, um, that's kind of a joke, but the reality is um, we're not pitting this against other verses of Scripture. But I want to demonstrate to you that the psalmist is praying what he's praying here because he has read the Scriptures. And he is convinced that God's word is absolutely true. I think we have time. So why don't you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Just keep your finger here, but turn to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13 is most certainly written before, probably written uh, at least 150 years before Psalm 137. So this was definitely a part of the psalmist's canon of Scripture. And he was meditating on Scripture. And I can prove it to you. In Isaiah 13, he begins the chapter by saying this, Behold, uh, the, the burden, rather, against Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos saw. You have to understand, when Isaiah wrote these words, Babylon was not a world power. Uh, the nation of Assyria the city of Nineveh was actually the dominant world power at this time. Isaiah was writing this. Babylon was really uh, nothing to speak of. It was not significantly influential. No one would have thought Babylon would be a, a major threat at this point. But obviously the prophet here is, is speaking of things that God has planned and laid out that are contrary to human wisdom, but they're God's. And so God is speaking here a burden that is an oracle against Babylon. This is a bad, by the way, that means it's bad news for Babylon, okay? It's an oracle against Babylon. And here he describes what will happen. Um, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but you can skip down with me to verse 9. He's talking here about the, the, the day of the Lord coming and the destruction that's going to come on Babylon. But look at verse 9 as he describes this in some detail. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate. And he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. He's talking here about judging and he says, verse 11, I'll punish the world for its evil. But 
But if you skip down, uh, well, I'll just skip down the next, uh, down to verse um, verse 14. It shall be as the hunted gazelle, as a, as a sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people and everyone will flee to his own land. Everyone who is found, listen to this, everyone who is found will be thrust through and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Verse 17, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver. And as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also their their bows will dash the young men to pieces and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. God promised absolute and total destruction of Babylon. Prophet Isaiah, 150 years at least, maybe as many as 200 uh, or uh, uh, as many as 200 years before this psalm is written, the prophet Isaiah writes that this is what God is going to do to Babylon. Where do you think the psalmist got this idea from? He was reading the scriptures. Now there's other places we could go. Uh, I don't want to take the time to do that this morning, but you might jot them down. Isaiah 47, that chapter. Jeremiah 50 and 51, two very lengthy chapters that describe in great detail and power the destruction of Babylon that God has promised. And of course, for those of you who have been with us uh, last year when we studied the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, you might remember in Revelation 18, John describes the future condemnation of the city of Babylon. What's interesting in Revelation 18 is that Babylon is destroyed and it is destroyed because of judgment for what they have done. Obviously, I recognize the psalmist wasn't reading the book of Revelation, okay? Um, But when he said what he says here in verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 137, he is not making this up. He is praying God's word back to him. He is claiming the promise that God has made. The, The prophecy of judgment. He is reading that and saying, God, you have promised to execute judgment and justice. And we see it in Jeremiah 50, and we see it echoed in Revelation 18, verse 6. I'll quote you what Revelation 18, 6 says, Render to her, Babylon, just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. She will be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord God who judges her. So the principle that the psalmist is is, is using here, the principle that he is, is invoking here, it's what Samuel Cox, uh, in a commentary on another psalm, but many, many years ago wrote this. He said, it is the old law, old but never out of date, that as men do, so it shall be done to them again, that as they sow, so shall they also reap. The psalmist, the psalmist says, remember, Lord, what they have done and repay them. Give to them according to their works. This is judgment. He is calling on God for justice to be done. And he is trusting in God. He is saying that God will remember. And the Bible tells us that God will remember, that he has books, in fact, that are written with the works of men. And that one day those books will be opened. And every work that is recorded in them will be brought into judgment. So when you think about the day in which we live, the day in which right and wrong have been turned on their head, 
How can we endure? How can we endure in a day and age when persecution of Christians, of believers is rampant? And, and by the way, don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about churches being forced to meet outside under tents or wear masks or practice so-called social distancing or anything like that. I'm talking about malicious and cruel persecutions that Christians are facing all over the world today. How are such things to be endured? What do we do when wicked people come to power and they seek to destroy the faith and they lead many people to, to, to betray the Lord, to turn away from His promises? What do we do? Christian, take heart. Consider the example of the psalmist and these believing Jews who endured their captivity. They remembered Zion. They kept their eyes focused on the promises of God and not on the mocking scorn of their captors. They rejected that idea that somehow God had lost control. It's true that often we bring trouble and pain on ourselves by our own sin. But even then we have to reaffirm our commitment to the truth. We have to come back to the promises of God and His grace and remind ourselves, remember, do not forget these things. They are true. And Christian, it's it's just as true for us today. Remember that God Himself will judge the wicked. We read about that in in Revelation 17 and 18. We read about Babylon and the fall of Babylon. And then chapter 19, of course, we read about how that fall takes place. Because John says, I saw the heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. I always love how um, people are quick to to, uh, suggest that the God of the Old Testament is a God of war and judgment and vengeance. And the God of the New Testament is a God of love and gentleness. And I say, well, what about the rider on the white horse, faithful and true, who judges and makes war. John says, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is who he is. Jesus Christ will come and he will judge. He will remember. He will repay. We do not have to. We can be satisfied with the fact that He has promised to do so. We do not have to hold out. We do not have to be troubled by the apparent failure of justice today. Because ultimately we can trust that God will remember these things. Just a question as we close this morning. Have you surrendered to Him? He is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And today you have the opportunity to bow your knee to Him, to surrender to Him your heart and your life, to be saved by His grace. The psalmist here reminds us of the fierce wrath of God. What he and his his uh, fellow Jews had experienced, but also what he looks forward to, the, the, the reality that justice will be done. The wrath of God is, is on display. But you do not have to face God's wrath because Jesus Christ already faced it for you. He took the wrath of God as your substitute when He died on the cross for your sins. And if you will trust in Him today, He will forgive your sins. He will reconcile you to God. I want to encourage you this morning to consider the reality of the message of this psalm. See that God is working in your life 
He's not done yet. Are you going to respond to him today? Are you going to trust in him and find rest and find peace even in the darkest of days? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning to you and we confess that we are sinners. Even even as Christians who have trusted in you and, and been born again, we are sinners and we continue by our foolishness and our stubbornness of heart, we continue to go our own way to bring on ourselves the consequences of sinful choices. Father, I pray that you would help us never to forget the effects of our sin, the costliness of our sin. But even as we remember the great and tragic price of sin, may we remember that your grace has been promised to us through Jesus Christ. Help us to cling to that, to determine to remember and remind ourselves of your grace, even in those days when we are experiencing the effects of sin. And Lord, help us to commit, just as the psalmist did, commit our enemies, to commit those who sin against us, those who treat us cruelly, those who mistreat us, those who, who take advantage of us. Help us to commit them to you, knowing that you will do right you will judge that you may even be merciful to them if they should turn to you in repentance as we have done oh lord i pray that you help us today to trust you and to rest in you and father i pray if there's anyone listening to me today who has never bowed the knee to jesus christ the king of kings and lord of lords they would do so today because tomorrow it may be too late I pray they would cry out for mercy and forgiveness and be saved from their sins. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.